Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. In the past year, several prominent investment firms and hedge funds in the digital asset space have either closed down or significantly curtailed their activities, leaving only a few remaining. The asset class has experienced significant losses, and the lack of mature market infrastructure and regulatory uncertainty have led to decreased volumes and activity. This has limited the ability of managers to deploy capital effectively. Cambrian Asset Management isn't it for the long run. Cambrian is an SEC-registered investment manager applying data and software-driven approach to trading in cryptocurrencies, tokens, and other digital assets. From 2018, its goal has consistently been to earn exceptional, uncorrelated absolute returns from exposure to digital assets while limited downside risk. The approach is honed on a proprietary data store of over 100 billion market data points and uses automated trade execution algorithms to manage risk 24-7. Cambrian's investors include founders or principals from notable quantitative hedge fund, venture capital, and technology firms. As such, its capital base is strategic and patient in contrast with institutions. Investors commit to Cambrian to be positioned for long-term optionality with regards to how the asset class will perform. Our guest today is Martin Green. He's Cambrian's co-CIO and CEO. A self-declared bookworm and lifelong runner, he wasn't always expected to be running a crypto hedge fund, but he understands how technological innovation can create major waves of wealth creation and knows how to pick winners. After starting his career as a member of the tech banking group at Morgan Stanley in the 90s, he joined CNET in its early days, rising to the executive suite before its acquisition by CBS. He was then part of a team that led Sequoia-backed Mebo to its acquisition by Google. Martin then spent seven years committing his own capital to hone his portfolio management skills as a technology investor. Martin holds a Bachelor of Commerce, First Class Honors from Queen's University in Canada. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm English from the northwest of England. When I was 10 years old, my family emigrated to Canada. And so I spent the first 10 years of my life in England and the next, what, 13 years in Canada. I did a little stint in Japan, and then I moved to the United States as after graduation. So I've been here most of my life, actually, but I'm not yet a U.S. citizen. I'm still on a green card. Understood. And so as a child growing up, what kind of kid were you? Were you athletic? Were you more of a bookworm? Were you a combination of both? What were the early passions there? I was definitely a bookworm. Um, my father's an engineer, retired now. My mother, a librarian, also retired. And she used to bring home from the library a, a carrier bag, a plastic bag full of books every week. And so I, for many, many years, I used to read about a book a day and debate with my father. He's taught me logic. So I was definitely a bookworm and a bit of a loner, a bit of an introvert, although I um, spent a lot of time kind of either racing bikes, uh, mountain bikes in the mid 80s in Canada, and then running. So I've had a kind of a lifelong attachment to running. Do you still like speed and driving fast on bikes or cars? Or is this sort of interest waned over the years? Well, yes, it's waned somewhat. I used to really enjoy that. And had went through that phase. I still enjoy very much kind of the speed of dialing in kind of the balance and on a bike going downhill, for example, and just picking the line and executing it really well, or on a motorcycle or in a car, although we don't do the latter two things on the road. 
and I've done a little bit of time on the track, but I have friends who do that a lot, but it's just too much of a commitment um, in time that takes away from other things that are, that I enjoy. So not as much anymore. Absolutely. And uh, mountain biking is pretty unforgiving. When you make a mistake, it's usually pretty painful, but what a rush. I've had the chance to do it a few times and I think I can relate to that. So studies, you're obviously brought up in an environment where books and logic, as you said, matter a lot. What kind of topics and studies do you gravitate towards both in high school, but then you know, how do you make up your mind in terms of university or college, as we call it here? Yes. So I have a passion for science. I really enjoy it. It's a big topic, obviously, a broad array of things that you can study under science. I just love it. I love the quasi-deterministic nature of scientific inquiry, and yeah, it just really appeals to me. I will say that I had a great upbringing kind of from a family perspective, but one of the things about me is when we were in England, I didn't, we lived in a caravan, which is a trailer in the US, for a couple of years, and we weren't dirt poor or anything like that, but I always kind of growing up felt like my parents didn't go to university. We didn't have a lot of money compared to the people around me. And I had a big fear of becoming poor or staying not wealthy, if you will. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so that was a very formative thing. I had a big chip on my shoulder, if you will, that I wanted to achieve something economically when I was a kid. I was constantly in fear of falling short, basically, of that. And so although I really loved science, my dad was a bit of a disillusioned engineer coming from England. And he, in various ways, dissuaded me from pursuing science or engineering. And so I actually ended up gravitating towards finance and economics. You can debate whether economics is a science. I think it's probably not. But I ended up following that path. And that led to me coming to the United States after graduation. Understood. Yeah. I would say... My question with respect to this was, did you also feel that the need for validation was a big driver in your studies and then career progression, or was it a combination of keen interest in the subject matter, which you seem to manifest, as well as that inherent intrinsic motivation that you just outlined, which was trying to cut from an upbringing and making sure that you were going to be financially sound with your own finances? That's a great question to unpack that. I would say that there's probably, if you kind of do a stacked bar graph of my passion or my work effort in a longitudinal study, sort of like a time series of from when I was young to where I am now, I'm at 52. It's probably those two things at the beginning very much I applied myself to achieve from an economic kind of ladder point of view. So getting into the university program that I wanted to because I thought it was the most exclusive and gave me the broadest series of economic opportunities, regardless of whether or not it was super interesting. I mean, there are lots of things that are really interesting to study, I feel. And so at the time, I didn't choose among many, many interesting things based on sort of the marginal utility of its interest to me. I picked among many interesting things, the things that I thought were economically most, had the highest utility, and that was 
finance and economics and that type of thing. That's waned over time as I've achieved some level of the ability to choose how I spend my time and no longer sort of gripped by fear of being poor. And so over time, I've just spent more and more time on the things that I, I'm i really, really interested in. And yeah, so that's I think it's been nice over the last 10 or 15 years as my career has changed to being it's back into finance. I spent about 15 years in technology, internet companies, but it's back into finance and it's back into finance because it suits me. I really enjoy it. And I enjoy working with a small team on solving problems that I find really, really interesting. So yeah, it's a bit of both, but it's changed over time. Yeah. I like the thoroughness of laying it out in a chart. I'm pretty receptive to that being very data-driven myself and always had a fondness for data and data analysis. And you know, I'm sure we'll talk some more about that. You know, There's one thing that at the very, well, I guess the bottom of your resume, which is a stint as an investment banker as a junior. So was, was that right after college? Yes. And was this sort of the initial training that got you started in life? Yes. So I, coming from a small town in England and a small town in Canada, person in my family to go to university, I had set my sight on going to Wall Street. And I interviewed with a couple of the big consulting firms that recruited from my alma mater and the big investment bank, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. And it turned out through that process, I Morgan Stanley was by far and away my first choice. It seemed so intense, the learning curve. But the distinguishing feature of the people which who I met at Morgan Stanley was they were very eclectic compared to, let's say, Goldman at the time. And we're talking about the subset of people at those firms that I met through the interview process. So I don't want this to be. And this is back in 1994. So things have changed. Those had a very small window into it. But the factor was at Morgan Stanley, these people were really, really clever. They were really, really hardworking. And they were eclectic. There was a variety of people, and many of them were not good looking people. They were there because of their intellect, because of their hard work. And that wasn't true of all the other firms. Everybody seems very good looking at Goldman. And that to me was sort of like a, hmm, if I'm going to learn from people, I'm going to learn from people. I'd like to be a part of a group that's solely chosen based on the eclectic, but intelligent, you know, the things between their ears, basically, not necessarily where they came from, what they looked like. Yeah. And so that's why I chose Morgan Stanley. And at the time, the Goldman partner, who was my go-to person, was not very happy that I had preempted the interview process and accepted at Morgan Stanley before they'd given me an offer. They, they weren't very happy about that at all. But I was delighted. I learned a lot at Morgan Stanley. I was only there two years, but it was a very formative time. So it sounds like you're confirming that you're very, very, very driven by this just constant desire to either tackle complex things or intellectually challenging topics and learning. It's pretty clear and it comes out, I think, in what you've described as sort of your formative years, but it continues to the point you made earlier about, well, now that I have somewhat of a luxury to be able to pick and choose what I'm involved with. So we are also in the midst at the time. So we're talking about the mid-90s inflection point the browser wars, the internet 1.0 is really starting to happen in a big way. 
and suddenly you joined CNET. Talk to me about this progression. Like, first of all, how were you convinced? And looking at the dates when I was doing my research, it doesn't seem like you waited for the bonus. Usually people leave banks in March or thereabouts. And so you left before that. And I'm just curious as to what prompted you to leave. Was it the excitement of this new wave of innovation? What was it? That is so interesting. I never even occurred to me to wait for the bonus. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and I've turned, I've been thinking about, as you do it, if you're in one of these investment banking programs as an analyst, after two years, a lot of people go to business school or they go to a different, maybe even a client, but certainly they leave Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs. A very, very few people stay. We'd had a turnover at Morgan Stanley. The head of the group, Frank Quatrone, who was kind of the premier technology banker in the world at the time, he and his team had taken Apple Public and they had the most market share in technology in, in the mid-90s. They had left Morgan Stanley for Deutsche Bank. And I was in the spring of 1996. And they had offered me a chance to go with them at ridiculous salary. It was ridiculous because Joe Perella, who had flown in from New York, told me it was ridiculous when he asked me how old I was and what they offered me. And I said, it's not about the money. I might stay at Morgan Stanley because I like the culture and I like what I'm learning, but the people I worked with just left. And he said, well, what have they offered you to go? And I told him and he said, that's ridiculous. You're only whatever, 25, that's stupid money. And I stayed nonetheless, <laughs> which I guess tells you a lot, but I was kind of optimizing for not short-term money, obviously at that point in time, but rather just learning. And I had just come off. I had actually and given, I think, one of the larger bonuses as an analyst from the prior year, large in, in comparison to what I'd started with or what my dad and my mom made. It was a tiny amount of money compared to what the senior people make, obviously. But for me, it was material and it was affirming. But I didn't, I wanted to stay at Morgan Stanley at that point because I'd done the work to and chosen Morgan Stanley for a career. And I really enjoyed what I was doing. It was stressful, but I learned so much. And then three months later, four months later, perhaps in 1996, one of our clients, CNET, we'd taken them public. One of the co-founders, Shelby Bonney, who had himself been at Morgan Stanley as a banker. And he'd actually worked for Julian Robertson and at Tiger Management before co-founding CNET. I'd worked with very closely with him on the IPO, and he was instrumental in convincing me to go to work at CNET. His, essentially, his pitch was, you understand the potential for the internet, the web. There were about 30, maybe 35 million people on the World Wide Web at the time. And he said, this could be transformational, once in a generation type of change in technology and media, and you seem really interested in it. Come work with me to help grow this internet company. And if it doesn't work out, you can go back to banking. And I thought, I turned him down the first time or second time he asked me. And then after a while, I thought, you know what, that logic's pretty compelling. So yeah, I left to join CNET in 1996. I think I was employee 220 or something like that. Yeah, we tend to forget how fast companies used to grow. I remember my first company, which was 
a few years later, but still in that era of the internet, right before the bubble burst, and I started employee number 15. By the time I'd left, which was literally a year and a half later, there were 250 employees. I mean, it was just madness. I was going to ask, was Mary Meeker at Morgan when you were there? Yes, we worked together on a couple of deals. This is when the very clear line between research and banking wasn't so clear. You could talk to each other and and do all of that. Yes, I worked with Mary for a couple of years. No, that's great. I did not work directly with her, but she was very much working with the founders of the company I joined as my first job ever and used to see her in the office quite frequently. So for those listeners who are maybe too young to remember or even have lived this era, Mary Meeker was a power to be reckoned with. She was, I don't want to draw comparisons, but in terms of her convictions at the time, Kathy Woods reminds me a lot of that conviction and strength and the arguments that she makes for the digital asset realm and and some of the intangible value created by innovation. A lot of similarities there. Again, I don't want to draw comparisons, but it reminds me a little bit of that approach and the narrative as well. Yeah, Mary's approach, I would say, was unique because of her capacity for direct primary research that was not just insightful, but it was overwhelming in its thoroughness. And so, yes, there's that conviction that you talked about, and maybe there's a parallel in the conviction between Mary and Kathy. But I would say, having seen Mary's work up close and personal, she's her attention to detail and her thoroughness was unique. And I think that that gave her, like, this wasn't just opinions. These were really well-researched insights that she was providing people that in many ways were contrarian or controversial or, and in some cases, and this is maybe where the parallel goes to Kathy, people saw the potential, but Mary would say, no, because of exponential technologies or because of this, that, and the other, it's actually 10, maybe a hundred times. It's an order of magnitude or maybe two orders of magnitude more valuable than people are seeing right now. And oftentimes in the ensuing 12 to 36 months, she would be proven right time and time again. So people started listening to what she had to say. And certainly over the next two decades, boy, was she proven right, right? I mean, many times over, many times over. Yeah. So in, in the reason I, I focus on this part of your career, which I thought was very interesting is, again, now you're running a hedge fund, which is an asset management business. And we'll talk about how you've structured it in the way that it's different. But you were in tech for a long time, and presumably you ran lines of businesses, and you were an operator, right? And so talk to us about that era as an operator in an industry that was growing really fast. You straddled, you know, I don't know if you want to call it a winter, but certainly the dot-com bust and bear market that followed in 2002, 2003, which was a difficult time for technology. I got started really, I mean, my first business we started building around that time. And I remember people just not believing it anymore and be able to hire very, very talented engineers for $60,000 a year. It was difficult, soul-searching time. So I'm wondering what your experience was straddling the exuberance 
pre-dot-com bubble and then seeing the resurgence and the rebirth with Web2? That's a great question. First, I would say that very few of us knew what we were doing, and I certainly didn't know what I was doing. We were all trying to figure it out as we went along and learn from mistakes that we were constantly making. I think the second thing I would say is I was a terrible manager, and I didn't really understand the human factors that are so important in building and the enjoyment that comes from working with people who you really love and or really respect and trust. And so I was really bad at that. It was all about the right answer or the analytics or things that are important. They're necessary, but they're not sufficient. So I will say, for what I'm about to say, please understand that this is from a, a point of weakness, not necessarily strength. Luckily, I was mentored by a number of people who were phenomenal leaders, phenomenal managers, phenomenal people who cared a lot about the people that they were responsible for. And so some of that over time, I've hope I've tried to borrow from them and afterwards. But at the time, in the moment, I was good at certain things, but management of people wasn't what at the beginning was not a strength of mine at all. But you asked a little bit about cycle. I would say that the exuberance and the despondency of the late 90s and then the early 2000s, everyone felt. Some people behaved according to those feelings, meaning they took irresponsible risks in, during the period of exuberance and they were so despondent during the crash that they abandoned the industry or they abandoned the long-term trend or the long-term vision for what the, the technology projects or companies could accomplish. And they sort of abandoned ship prematurely. Some people felt all of those same emotions, but sort of kept the faith, I guess. And I was one of those people. But yeah, it was a very, very difficult time. It was a very, very difficult time. Did was CNET a, and not to pry for details, but was it a significant contributor to accelerating your own personal wealth creation? Yes, certainly it was. I didn't spend very much money. I was working a very long hours and CNET issued stock to its employees. Um, so everybody participated. It was a public company. This, these were in the days when companies went public at valuations, forget about inflation, don't adjust for inflation, for example, but you went public at what today would be maybe a series B or maybe even a strong series A valuation. CNET went public probably at less than $150 million market cap. And then because of the vagaries of the, of the market, there were opportunities where the stock was in the toilet and additional options might be granted to people and the equity value was really low. So yeah, it was life-changing for many people, myself included. Then you continue down the road of executive leadership in tech. And I want to get to the part where you start focusing your time and attention towards wealth preservation, but also investing and redeploying your own capital into the world, the economy, into innovation. What was that transition like? 
So I had decided after about 10 years at CNET that I wanted to become an investor. I loved the optimism around technology innovation, and I loved the value creation. That, and when I'm talking about that, I mean the consumer surplus that technology innovation can bestow. And so the benefits to the economy and consumers and technology companies can confer. And then some element of that is captured by the creator of the technologies. And I just was enamored by this. I thought it was phenomenal. I mean, where I started from in the Northwest of England, the reason we emigrated from England was that employment, unemployment rate was probably somewhere close to 30%. And there was a real discrimination against people from Northern England going to London, for example. And so just to be in an environment where there were so many people from around the world, and it didn't matter where you went to school or who your parents were or whether you, it just was, if you could do the work, you put in the hours and it just seemed, it was, I was enamored by the whole thing. So I decided that I wanted to lean more into that. And maybe in my early forties, I might, I was managing a couple of hundred people and a pretty significant line of business at CNET. And I thought, you know, this is starting to look more like, I don't know, stuff that maybe doesn't play to my, my strengths. And I'd like to kind of have more hands-on, get earlier in, in the value creation cycle and invest in, in that. And no matter what so sort of the innovation in the future comes from, what technology paradigms there may be, I'd like to get closer to, to looking at so I took a role at a Sequoia-backed startup called Mebo in 2007. I think I was employee number seven or eight. And yeah, I was there five years. And Google bought the company in 2012. And that gave me, it wasn't a massive outcome or anything like that. It got to the point where my wife and I decided I would like to invest my, our own capital and not work at another firm, but rather have the opportunity to invest in the technology basically as I saw it. So yeah, I, for the most part, invested for a number of years in the public markets, long and short in technology. And that led to coming across Bitcoin and then Ethereum and other things. So now let's talk about the inception and the foundational layer really of Cambrian. You were obviously already familiar with the principles and the concept of investing, at least having done it yourself, but you weren't a professional, let's say, hedge fund manager, for example. How do you go about, how does the idea initially form? Was it your idea? How did it come about? So in 2012, before when I was investing in equities, I was very fortunate to have some mentors from the hedge fund world who were in my network, who had worked for Julian Robertson at Tiger Management and other large and very successful hedge fund. And I basically started my own hedge fund focused on tech equities, long and short. And I learned by doing and by osmosis from them. And it was really a kind of a glorified personal account or family office. But I did have an external fund administrator, and I did have an external auditor, and I accepted capital from some of these friends who were in the hedge fund world and then some in 
venture world and some entrepreneurs because I was just focused on tech and I wanted to get surround myself with people who could help because I was kind of a basically just focused on that. And I had been over the years, the long and the short of it is I think I was a, I became a very, a, quite a decent analyst and I, and at, at the beginning, a terrible portfolio manager. And there's a, obviously, as you know, very well, there's a probably more than half <laughs> of the returns and certainly over more than half of the risk is can be attributed to portfolio management, portfolio construction, sizing, your positions, et cetera, et cetera, and not just picking good companies. I think I was pretty decent at picking good companies before they became, before there was a big value catalyst that everybody else could see, but it was the portfolio construction that I basically spent years learning on the job making mistakes, learning from other people, how to improve it. And I think in the last three years of four years of doing that, I got to a decent, probably an above average grade on portfolio construction as well. And But alongside that process, I there was one asset in the portfolio, and this is kind of going from 2015 onwards, that didn't fit because you couldn't value it on a fundamental basis. So you couldn't say its intrinsic value is X and it's more than that or less than that. So it should be sold or it should be bought in the portfolio. And that was Bitcoin. And so I was, it stuck like a little pebble in your shoe. I bought it because I thought it might provide an exceptional long-term return compared to like an early stage technology venture investment, except it was liquid. So it goes into a liquid portfolio, but on the other hand, you can't value it like you can value Facebook or Apple. And so it was just this pebble in the shoe, a high returning pebble, to be clear, but really problematic in terms of how to manage inside a portfolio. And so I started picking at that problem. And I kind of thought, well, if we can try and solve that problem, how to risk manage Bitcoin, that would be a good problem to solve. And then it became evident to me that it's not just Bitcoin, Ethereum, there may be others. We may be looking at something that is a paradigm shift or a new technology paradigm that exists in the future that didn't exist in the past, sort of like cloud or mobile. And so this would be a worthwhile thing because they're early stage technology projects. So they can confer on the investor returns that are exceptional over the long term, comparable to an early stage tech venture investments in terms of their IRR, if you will, or compound annual growth rate. But the interesting part of it is they provide that growth potential in a liquid format because there's a secondary market, as you know. And so I started thinking, well, this would be a really interesting problem to solve. And so I started talking with everyone I knew about how to try and solve that problem. And yeah, one thing led to another. And we, Jay Posner, my co-founder and co-CIO of Cambrian, and I started Cambrian. What capital did you initially start with? Was it your own? Was it or a combination of your own and others? Did you follow the same blueprint of whether it was your money, but you still ran it like a proper asset management firm? You wanted a track record. You wanted auditing. You wanted the transparency and the accountability. Yes, it's a great question. So the way we did it is essentially taking the learnings from the first fund, but doing more of the things that worked. So having 
smart people involved where they have skin in the game and your success that because they have a little bit of money with you, it really doesn't matter how much money, but if they have a little bit of money with you and they're invested in your success, then maybe they'll send you something or they'll react to an idea that you have in a way that they just may not if they don't have quote skin in the game. But these have to be people who have some reason to work with you and trust you to not do the silly things. And so what we did differently in this go-round with Cambrian is we created the general partnership. And after Jay and I did a, a, an initial go-round with just that group of people as fund investors, we created the general partnership as a C-corporation, and we invited them to join us as equity investors. And so that was one of the most pivotal decisions, I think, that over the years has turned out to be a really good decision in hindsight. And we did it for a couple of reasons. But one of the benefits was we've got a number of people who have extraordinary expertise, who are who have some s- small investment maybe for them and for us, but equity ownership in, in the C-corporation that manages the fund, the hedge fund. And some of them may, may have capital in the hedge fund and they pay fees for that but they also an equity ownership. And we did it in a way that it's the employees, all the people that work at Cambrian have equity and the total ownership of employees, et cetera, is close to 80%. So we're not talking about seeding control or anything like that to an institutional investor or anything like that. This is a group of people that would include folks like Howard Morgan, who co-founded a number of venture funds, but originally co-founded Renaissance Technologies with Jim Simons. So people like Howard have tremendous experience that they can, that we can tap. And yeah, that's been an important difference. I think the C-Corporation for us has been the right choice in terms of the structure of the management company. Well, it definitely has implications in matters of governance and economics, certainly taxation. We've talked about this, right? But you made a choice for listeners who may or may not be familiar, the management company, which often shares ownership with the general partner in a given investment vehicle that is being managed by the management company, the asset manager, really is akin to a pass-through cash flow generating investment, right? The reason why professionals might partner up to manage assets is to generate cash flow. And so the choice that you made was one to defer the distribution of cash flows in favor of accruing enterprise value. In other words, and this matters as we talk about your thesis and what it is that you're really trying to accomplish from a security selection, portfolio management, asset management perspective, that you made a choice, a conscious decision at the inception in favor of enterprise value creation as opposed to just creating yet another cash flow vehicle for yourselves. The approach to building human capital seems very similar to tech, right? Yes. In that context, right? Because presumably you're incentivizing your employees in a way that, again, delays the full distribution of cash flows. I'm assuming they're paid good and reasonable wages for their market value as employees. But it is a different mindset than, let's say, you go join a hedge fund on Wall Street. There's an expectation 
and a market where people can relatively quickly discover sort of where things are clearing and what they would get paid for a certain job. Yeah, I think the impact of the decision to have the management and GP entity, it's one and the same in our case, because as a quantitative trading firm, our, everything is, is short term. So there's no real reason to delineate between the two management company or and the GP. So there is it's a C corporation. And the decision for that has is great consequences for supporting what we want to achieve with our team. So we have a team of less than 10 people. They have equity. As you said, we try to have strong compensation for them on the salary and benefits and things like that. There's a performance bonus, of course, at the end of the year. But yeah, we're not distributing the full set of cash flows, as you say, from that we may earn in a good, great year. It goes on the balance sheet of that management company that everybody has equity in. It gets reinvested in our fund. So our limited partners enjoy that. We are the largest investor in our own hedge fund. And so they enjoy that alignment of interests. And the other thing that it does is it just supports people. When we hire folks, we typically hire people who are either going to be in science, like academic science, or in technology companies, and probably not. Their attitude probably wouldn't fit at a traditional quantitative hedge fund. It, and our approach is very, very collaborative. And it's the attention and the prioritization and the work can go far beyond a year. So we'll have a multi-year roadmap. You know, one of our features that we developed in our model took 18 months from inception to going into production. And you can really kind of have someone working on this for 18 months if you're trying to create something that has enduring value um, beyond sort of what the returns are of at the end of the year, it's much easier to align everybody's incentive if you had to do those types of projects that have long payoffs and work in a very collegial way where it's not just sort of a zero sum, everybody's throwing an elbow to try and get as much of the payout of the carried interest at the end of the year. Those are not the type of people that would be attracted to our firm and nor would we want them. And this is very differentiated. And I would say, and I'm glad we're having this conversation because the business of investing, at least quantitatively, has evolved to be very, very technology-driven. And the approach to problem-solving and to create intellectual property has also changed. And it requires another mode of operation, collaborative, transparent, and I'd say that on the topic of stakeholder alignment, I wouldn't say it is Wall Street's forte. Wall Street is very much a winner-take-all kind of mentality or zero-sum game. And too many times, you end up not accruing talent or human capital, but losing human capital because principals are, quite frankly, greedy. They want to keep the lion's share of... Uh, they want it now, which is different from what you're doing. They want the cash flow now, and they want most of it now. And what seems to be a high payout, let's say from a rank and file employee standpoint, is really nothing compared to what the principals might bring home in a good year. So I commend you for that. But it also shows that you were able to build with your own set of constraints, right? And so you had, on some level, a little bit more 
leeway and a little bit more freedom. I think it came from the fact that you had your own personal capital and you were able to make unconstrained decisions as to what you and, and your partner thought was going to be optimal for the business success. So switching to the business itself, right? Love to dig a little bit deeper into how do you think about identifying monetization opportunities? Like how differentiated do you believe your approach is? I mean, you said you cut your teeth as a technology stock picker on the long and short side of things. You figured out portfolio management, right? And again, for listeners, there's several aspects to asset management. I mean, there's security selection, there's portfolio construction, then there's the execution against those targets, which are, you're going to get a signal to buy or sell some asset, then you need to know in what quantities, because you're accruing to an existing portfolio or building a portfolio that lives and breathes, where there are assets that are co-varying and contributing to the risk of that portfolio and accruing returns, presumably if you made the right selection choices. So executing that is also not only could be a source of diminishing returns if you don't execute well, but it could also be accretive. And then there's managing the risk and looking at what you have and drawing from it, learning from it, validating that your initial thesis was correct. So having gone through sort of the more academic description of what the asset management process is, how do you guys go about it and why do you think it's different? Yeah. So let's start with what we're trying to, what we believe about the markets and where sources of return can come from. Um, so we talked before that digital assets are in many ways comparable to early stage technology venture investments in their life cycle, like where they are on the potential life cycle on a S curve of adoption. They're early. And so but their advantage relative to those private tech venture investments is they have a secondary market. They trade 24-7 in a liquid format. And so what we're trying to do is a couple of things. Number one, everything we do is quantitative and it's objective. So we're not making discretionary human decisions. We build models to execute. And so one of the things we're trying to do is actively reallocate capital towards successful projects and away from unsuccessful products projects over time in order to minimize the asset selection risk or said a different way in order to redistribute capital from the left hand side of the return stream in a histogram to the right hand side the right tail and this is one of the things that i think students of Passive investing, for example, in index funds, ETFs that track, let's say, even just NASDAQ will recognize, which is the long-term returns. And we're talking about over five, 10-year period, the superior returns from some of those vehicles are because they are market cap weighted. They redistribute capital away from losers over time into winners. And so it turns out that a small number of stocks in these investment vehicles are responsible for the majority of the compound returns that people love about those types of vehicles. It's counterintuitive in a way, but we want to do that on steroids. So we want to get, avoid getting our capital stuck in a project that is going through a death spiral, we'll 
try to identify that quantitatively and rotate capital away from it into something else that has more potential. So that's kind of one one thing. And that operates over on the margin every 24 hours. We can reallocate according to the models, but you really see it over years. So when we first started trading Bitcoin versus Ethereum, there was much, much more capital put to Bitcoin. And not that Bitcoin's losing or anything like that, but Ethereum has been getting more and more of the portfolio capital over time as it's been, quote, winning, if you will. And that generates return. The second thing is we go long and short, and we're deliberately sensitive to downside risk in the markets. So these assets, everybody knows they're very volatile. Everybody understands that they can have crushing drawdowns. And everybody understands that if you are down 50% in an asset, or if the asset is down 50%, you need a 100% return to get back to even. So the dynamics of downside risk are punishing. And so our models are designed to be deliberately sensitive to avoiding downside risks in these assets, downside volatility, drawdowns, while trying to maximize the portion of the upside volatility, meaning we won't get 100% when an asset rallies in a month or in a quarter or in a year, but we're trying to capture as much of that as possible, given all the other trade-offs but we definitely do not want to suffer the punishing effects of having going through the drawdowns that the assets do do, which is they can be down 30, 40, 50, 60, 70%. And that makes it much, much more difficult if you get caught in those things to compound your returns at superior rates. Conversely, if you can avoid them or if you can be short into those scenarios, all the better. So that's the other piece of the strategy. We have hurdle rates for our R&D. We have persistence. Basically, we're looking for things that have that we think are generalizable and robust over time, meaning they're not a great idea that will not have a shelf life beyond a few months where we'll have to find another one to replace it. We want to find things that we think have persistence in generating alpha over years, and we want them to be material. So we don't want to do things that might return a few hundred, a couple of hundred basis points of return. We want to be swinging for, not swinging is the wrong analogy, but we want to be uncovering sources of alpha that are really, really material, that where the juice is worth the squeeze. Yeah, that's where being in in the digital asset space offers still today, and I presume in the next cycle, will still offer those types of opportunities. It's interesting what you said about market-weighted indices, something that gets lost in translation for those who don't necessarily understand the mechanics. But when you think about it, it is a flavor of momentum allocation in the sense that it tends to allocate more weight to winners and less weight to losers over time. So in essence, captures that anomaly in a systematic manner. Talk to me a little bit about the distributional properties. I mean, you're a quantitative firm. You spent a lot of time investing and trading in in stocks and to the extent or not that it was a highly quantitative process. In this case, how different are the distributional properties of the underlying assets? I mean, there is a case. So there was an interesting paper that came out that out of my alma mater, the University of Chicago, by two really good professors, Stombo and 
Veronese and talked about the valuations of the NASDAQ at the peak of the internet bubble. And they made reference to their explanation was that given the uncertainty and hence the high variance of the terminal payoff of the industry, that if you looked at equity as an option on that payoff, right, that it warranted a high valuation. Because as we know, one of the most important input, especially in a long-dated option, is the implied volatility, right? And so one can look at the digital asset class as an option on an outcome on over which there's tremendous variance in potential ways it could play out. And so it trades the instruments themselves tend to behave a little bit like options themselves. I think you just made a phenomenal point. I think it's really underappreciated. You'll hear Bill Gurley from Benchmark to talk about that as well. The thing that he would say is, hey, in one of these firms you know, the, that they're looking for, the most you can lose is the amount of capital you put in. The most you can win is some very, very large multiple of it, whether it's three times, 10 times, 50 times, 100 times, some of them have been hundreds of in terms of the multiple of return. And so it's not that you're trying to avoid losers, you're trying to make sure you're in the winners. And he'd be the last person on the face of the earth to say valuation doesn't matter, or one of them, but it's worth it. It's worth it to go for those companies where when you ask the question, what could go right? I think he said this a couple of times. You're saying that this is a similar thing. In the terminal value, if it is, if the dispersion of potential returns is, yes, it could go to zero, but yes, it could also be, under certain circumstances, massive upside, multiple, then that does warrant more attention than something where if it goes well, it's, it'll eke out a, a nice return. And I think these assets, people ask, What's different about them? And you kind of implied that as well versus equities. I think if you're looking at things with, you could just look at Bitcoin and Ethereum as two examples, you can absolutely make a case. People will make a case and that they can go to zero. But if they succeed, they can be worth their addressable market. And if they are broadly adopted, then the value of that asset is some very, very large multiple uh, from where it is today. And so the discussion in the market is very much not, okay, it should be worth this, and it's trading at a 20% discount or a 20% premium to it today. The discussion in the market is, what do we think about the current information we're getting about the potential size and probability of the terminal value? Is it, I don't want to throw out numbers around Bitcoin and ETH and things like that, but that's the discussion. That's what causes the volatility. It's what causes the momentum. It's what causes momentum crashes. It causes, and so, yeah, it's the exact opposite of the value investors. I'm looking for things that are trading at a discount to the book value because over time, in a case of liquidation, I can capture that, that spread and close that gap. That's the opposite investment case to this. These things are dr driven very much by as our early stage tech investments, some discussion, speculation about the size or the magnitude of the terminal value, if adopted widely, and the probability of 
it getting to that. How do you look at it from a risk management perspective? You have a partner we discussed who's a seasoned portfolio manager, someone who has been living and breathing risk in highly volatile assets, even prior to digital assets. How did you guys fare in 2022? How do you look at risk management generically? Because that's given the share of the LP base in, in your funds that is yours. If anyone would care about it, it's yourselves. But also from a fiduciary standpoint, you know, how have you thought about engineering that in a way that's sustainable and allows you to live another day? Yeah, that's a great question. So it takes a small team of people to do this really well. And fortunately, we have some folks that I work with who are exceptionally good in these areas. They have lots of experience. And I think they've thought very critically about the sources of risk and the ways in which we can understand it, mitigate it or eliminate them, and for the sources of risk that we think we can transform into opportunities for return, kind of how we think about that. So to answer your question specifically, Look, my co, our co-CIO Jay Posner has a before Cambrian had ten years at traditional hedge funds and Zimmer Lucas and Millennium Management and his successful tenure at both. And he is never worked with, or even I've never talked with anyone who has as diligent a way of thinking about deconstructing the sources of risk as Jay. He's, this is a mindset that he brings and an attention that he brings to it. And so I think a lot of our risk management in terms of, of what we do comes from him. At the same time, we also have Tony Fenner-Lightow, who used to be CEO of Winton Capital as our president. And his experience is sort of from a, as a fiduciary not so much on the portfolio construction side or the risk management from an investment perspective, but the operational risk management, kind of what does a 20 plus billion dollar hedge fund do from a best practices point of view on counterparty risk and the various other sources of operational risk. And then we have Joe Daldalau, who's our chief compliance officer, and he is a former, he's a CPA and he's a former auditor and had a long career in fund administration before joining Cambrian. So the first risk is counterparty risk. And so we are very conservative on taking counterparty risk because if you think about it, the risk is principal loss of principal capital, and the return might be cheaper execution measured in basis points, or it may be some other things in terms of accessing sources of yield in perpetual swaps markets, et cetera, et cetera. But our philosophy is we will always trade the loss of the return for avoiding principal loss of capital from a counterparty because it can be catastrophic. And so we're very conservative on counterparty risk. The second major risk is liquidity risk. And so our sizing of our exposure in the market is has a big component of it is our understanding of the liquidity of the market and of each of the assets as they relate to one another. And there's a, the liquidity in digital assets is very volatile. There's wide dispersion between one asset and another. And even for assets that have similar market caps, one can have a pretty 
decent amount of liquidity and the other one can be if you want to move out of a position you will move the market tremendously and so understanding that and putting it into our portfolio construction and our execution is critical and then there's a whole slew of other risks but those are the two main ones counterparty and liquidity risk these are risks that are typically not well compensated for it's impressive how people fail to see that inevitably i mean we're talking about options that counterparty risk is a form of being short an option that you're quite frankly not being compensated for or at least not well enough to mitigate and justify that exposure and especially in a asset class that is as nascent as this one and where the rules are quite frankly at times a little murky liquidity i'm glad to hear you say this as a former credit portfolio manager as someone who's also traded options books so instruments and cds and op- instruments that are less liquid than, say, Fortune 500 or S&P 500 equities, very well misunderstood. Many times you could have a great security selection process, but it's at the construction and, as I recall mentioned, the execution layer. Execution goes both ways, but it's getting into the book and then out of the book, right? And typically, when you need to degross, it happens at a time when the market is not necessarily your friend. And so you need to account for what is typically referred to the liquidity tail. And the more liquid your asset, the more important it is to appropriately model that and have a very good idea of what is in your book. Will you be able to move out of it? And if you can't, well, how much loss could you sustain if it's moving against you? How capital intensive are your various investment strategies in general? Tell me what you mean by that question. Tell me what's the question behind the question, if you wouldn't mind. Well, in if one employs derivatives, for example, there's it's referred to as you and I know as initial margin and variation margin. So these could be relatively capital efficient. There are forms of leverage that are accessible to institutional investors. In other words, in order to deploy $100 of exposure, you might only need to put 20 down, for example, that side of things. And then I'm assuming, I don't know how much leverage you have access to, or would you want to employ on instruments such as sort of lower market cap tokens if you're involved in them, because they're inherently so volatile themselves. It would be like taking on leverage on an, a long option position, which could be incredibly volatile. Yep, I suspected that was what you were asking about, but I thank you very much for unpacking that question. We don't use leverage. And so we're, I think, compared to traditional, some traditional funds, we're very capital inefficient, but that's by design. Yeah. We will flex our gross and net exposure up to 100%. And so our capital can be fully deployed long or at different points in time, it might be fully deployed short, or I should say, a portion of it will be deployed short, and we will not have an offsetting long position. So it will be in cash and then some proportion net negative exposure at an aggregate level. And that's by design. It does result in some more volatility because we're not just sort of hedging out the market and running market neutral, but it's by design because we will tolerate some amount of volatility in our own returns in in pursuit of higher returns over time 
but yeah, we don't currently use leverage and have no, we haven't done that over the last four years. How do you deal with the trade-off and markets are reflexive in nature. So there's something to be said about overfitting. There's something to be said about in equities. If you ran models on 1990s, you know, equity cross-section, it may work today. Likely you wouldn't. There might be principles and concepts that work, but it probably just strategy for strategy deployed would not work. You have a very short data set, however, and presumably models have to be studied or calibrated. How do you deal with this in-out sample trade-off in your research process? It's an excellent question, and I agree with you on the premise of it, that the data set just is not very large. We spent a, a lot of time getting it to be as clean as possible when before we even started trading. It took us several months, maybe closer to a year than six months to get to a point where we felt like we had a basis on which to just trade. And I'm talking about that not as duration of the data time series that we had, but as the length of time collecting, cleaning the data set. And then of course, so we have a data set that's got over a billion, 100 billion data points in it and several billion get added to it every week and we collect it from the source from exchanges themselves and our data goes back in certain cases to 2014 um different slices of the data are available at on shorter durations you know than than going back to 2014 so we have every tick or every update in an order book for example but not back to 2014 in those cases. We have leverage information that we collect on how levered the rest of the market is, long and short. That was part of that, an 18-month research project that we completed last year. So we have a process where everything has to have an economic logic to it, I mean it has to be, it's a hypothesis-driven research approach. I think one of the unique things that we do is we don't, necessarily start from a what does the data suggest to us we should look at we start with brainstorming a hypotheses that we would like to test and hypotheses that are that need to be tested rigorously have to be approved by j and i the co-cios because the time you spend on things as a research group is super valuable and so we want to make sure that there's an economic logic that there's a reason, a rationale from our experience as to why something might be fruitful to look at. We do a several steps in terms of hypothesis testing. In the last year, we've significantly improved our ability to do rapid exploration of the surface area of those hypotheses, you know, in combinations with of different features and parameter cutoffs. When we first started, it was basically like, let's have an idea for this calculation. This calculation might work, and then you piece it together in a very manual process and evaluate it step by step, looking at every trade over several years and as to whether or not it was an outlier or not, and what happens if you pull some of them out and you obviously have a reserve data set and then for validation. But now we have a much more robust, I would say, process for doing this, and it can be executed 
in a semi-automated fashion. And we have a standards that our engineering team has put together in terms of our process for evaluating the efficacy of the signal. And we're not talking about p-value type of things. Um, but yeah, and we do, I think, are starting in our most recent research of features. I think we've started to employ some of the frameworks that some of the leading developers of machine learning algorithms utilize to do cross-validation and to do attribution, basically, of the decision was made and which features caused that decision to go this way in kind of what proportion. And so some of those techniques that help the developers of some of the more advanced machine learning systems to avoid it becoming a black box and to help them do the human feedback part of reinforcement learning. Some of those testing frameworks we utilize, even if the hypothesis of a feature that we're testing was brainstormed by a human being and wasn't found by an algorithm. Yeah, I think if you treat it as a very serious problem, the problem of overfitting, and there's multiple ways to go about it, I think you can minimize the risk. But at the end of the day, you have process in place that where there's independent, several ways of trying to identify whether you've got an overfitting problem. So I think the answer to that question is not to have like the one thing that you can hang your hat on, but to have a variety of ways of looking for overfitting problems and, and acting accordingly. That's probably too vague an answer, but I can maybe give a specific example if, there, if that's useful. No, no, I, I think it captures where the essence of a, the challenges of, again, having to be in this pioneering state where if you do some of the work, because on some level, right, in a very mature market like equities, it is incredibly hard to eke out a return through quantitative methods. There is an army of folks out there trying to beat the market. There's tremendous hoarding of incredibly powerful human capital. And the information, by and large, is all there. You can get the data. You have to do the work, but you can get the data. You can get all kinds of data. Here, look, on some parts in the cross-section of available tokens to trade, you're, we were talking about what stage companies used to go public back in the days or equivalent today in terms of valuation, maybe not stage. Today, token projects are going, quote unquote, public. And we could debate whether those are reward instruments or securities. We'll not get into that. But what you can trade is really tracking a fairly immature set of businesses, right? For others, it's a little bit more mature, right? And so you don't have a long history. The data, whilst the blockchain is incredibly fruitful in providing all kinds of insights and accountability, it's all there, it's all tra traceable, yet you need to make sense of it. And there are no accepted standards as to how you should go about it, what you should do. And that's also the interesting aspect of it, right? And so I think you've captured the essence of within the set of tools and your own experiences, collective experiences, how you're going about solving some of those trade-offs. 
I'll close this by saying that I had this conversation with another portfolio manager, especially on risk management and the notion that if you are in an asset class where your expected return is going to be significant, sometimes the refinements, the level of detail don't matter as much, right? It matters if your process is sound, if you think about risk. But if I compare this to fixed income, where literally every basis point really matters because the dispersion is so weak, here the dispersion is stupendous. I mean, it's incredible how much these things move, right? So what you really need to get right is your information coefficient, right? You need to make sure that you are forecasting things relatively well, because if you do, then you're going to capture a tremendous amount of dispersion in the cross-section, right? And ultimately, that's what makes the bulk of your returns, right? Not the small efficiency that you're going to capture here and there if you're doing some sophisticated low-latency market making or trading an instrument that's widely available and widely traded. So I thought you did a good job sort of qualifying this and talking about your approach at this juncture. Maxime, I would agree with what you just said. And if you're interested, I could just add one thing, which I think is something, I mean, everybody has their own strategy, but this one's worked for us, which is you have to approach these things with a notion of that you're not going to be omniscient. You have to have humility in your models and in your systems to acknowledge the fact that you're running probabilistic, a probabilistic process. It's not deterministic. You cannot predict the future. And you're accurately, super accurately, we are with precision. And so you need to account for the fact that the market will prove you wrong. Your feature will, in the model will say, let's get long. Your execution system will go do that. And as you're executing, the market's looking like it's giving you evidence that the feature was right and you should be long. And as soon as you put the last that you fill, get the last fill and you're fully long in the asset, the market changes. And our systems are designed not to require human intervention to say, you know what, we're wrong. The market's going against the trade. That does not mean the trade is now looking even more profitable and we should either add risk or just stay where we are. There, We design everything in with a fault tolerance that allows for the systems to say, the market's gone against our trade to a certain degree, we should just accept the fact that this is potentially a losing trade and we should cut the risk. Because we always want to be, especially in a market where, as you pointed out earlier, you have limited time series to deal with. The market may be different and it may be more extreme in the future in a situation than your model is expecting. And so you want to have your systems designed to take risk off on a, even if it's at 2 a.m. on a Sunday and not require a human to make that decision to override the model to reduce risk. We think that's really, really important. Understood. Do you think that if we go back and circle back to the very beginning of this conversation, tech industry in the mid-90s and the underestimated potential, and you really jumping into an adventure with CNET that at the time could have been construed as a little foolish, right? In many quarters of the world. And we talked about Mary Meeker and the forecast that played out many times over. Now, again, you find yourself in a similar situation. If you were parachuted on planet Earth 
2023, at least in the last six to nine months, and you read the press, I don't think you'd find a lot of positives when it came to blockchain, crypto, digital assets. It is nasty out there for the industry, right? Regulators are coming after and regulating through enforcement. The business community has become very, very cold. Allocation of capital outside of, quite frankly, diehard digital asset supporters, capital is hard to come by. So you find yourself again in a fairly contrarian position. Now, you're a lot more comfortable now. At the time, you had time, not money. Now you have money, maybe a little bit less time. How do you think about this period that we're in? And is your conviction still as strong? And do you believe that there is an existential threat? Do you believe that everything that you've been working towards might actually be for nothing? It's too early to say definitively, I think. I think anybody who tells you that in the midst of the 2001, 2002, 2003 timeframe where they have, they can tell you with a hundred percent conviction that the web will change everything and you will be streaming 4K over your TV and years and doing all the things that we do on the internet and mobile. It seems like that would be a likely bet over what duration and but you can't put a time frame on it and you can't put certainty on it and you certainly can't put certainty on the assets themselves like which company would do what over a period of time and the same can be said today so you can't have 100% conviction or that level i think the backdrop to that is is it conceivable that a distributed protocol for moving value around whether that's smart contract value or actual capital, is without a central intermediary, i.e. over internet nodes. So we have it for information, but is the central question, we won't ever have it for value, smart contract value of obligations or actual capital value going across the internet on decentralized nodes. Do we really believe that we're saying no, that will not happen. And it will only go through central intermediaries. I don't think that's a reasonable bet. I think it's reasonable to assume that we will have the ability to move capital and to move smart contract values of obligations and rights across the internet between nodes that are connected, but aren't don't have a central clearing mechanism. I think that that's just a fundamental probably going to happen with some conviction. We named the company Cambrian because of the evolutionary period several hundred million years ago, where at the time, all the species that were floating around at the time, most of them would go extinct. But it was a period because of the design space for life on Earth was pretty open. And so it was being lots of experiments in early forms of life of animal life. Most of them went extinct, but everything that walks the earth today or flies or swims is descended from some of those things. And I think if you kind of back out and you say, is it reasonable to assume that there will be decentralized exchange of value? Yes, it is. Is it reasonable that that's a large addressable market and there will be lots of value creation and some value capture by some of the networks that enable that? 
I think that's a reasonable bet. Which ones? We'll leave that up to the venture capitalists to make their decisions. But I have pretty high conviction of those two outcomes, that some will survive and prosper and be pretty large, create lots of value, capture some of that value. But I mean, the the exchange of value in today's economies around the world is much, much larger than the media and retail markets that the current generation of internet companies derive a lot of their value from. I think it's a reasonable, reasonable expectation that this is not the beginning of the end. Well, I know you're biased because you've been a big proponent, and so am I, of what lies ahead. But it's good to hear conviction. It's good to hear a thoughtful case being put together at a moment where many out there are employing the same energy to try to dispel the case, to try to find every flaw. And to your earlier point about Bill Gurley, it's what can go right. And I think many things can go right. And we need to put all our effort and ingenuity in trying to figure that out and also to be positioned to harness that. I want to thank you so much for spending time with me today. We've covered a lot and many different aspects, ranging from your stellar career leading up to starting Cambrian and the learnings and the teachings as to how you really, really developed into an investor now on your behalf and others. So it's been very enjoyable and I've truly appreciated your time today. It's been my pleasure, Maxine. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.